Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Jason Koop is a passionate runner, the author of Training Essentials for Ultra Running, the head coach of CTS Ultra Running, and someone who is not afraid to speak his mind. So in this episode of Off the Couch, we talk to Jason about his endurance coaching, nonsensical training aids and techniques, his recent running of the 330-kilometer Tour des Géants, the Tour of Giants, we talk about the current state of the debate when it comes to minimalist versus maximalist shoes. We ask him what he thinks the running scene will look like 10 years from now, and we cover a whole lot more. And so here it is, our conversation with Jason Coop. Well, Jason, it's it's cool to be talking with you. Uh, you are somebody who uh, is certainly a fixture in the modern running scene, I think it's fair to say. And let's just start a little bit with your background. When did you start running and how or why did you get into it? So I actually started running through team sports. You know, I grew maybe six inches or so in one, you know, in one grade level when I was in elementary school. I think it was sixth grade. And so it, it, you know, because I was taller than everybody else, I was just naturally good at basketball, right? Even though I really wasn't that good at basketball. <laughs> um, and uh, but what I found out through that experience is, is I was I, I was actually a pretty good runner uh, just through the conditioning drills where I'd always, you know, be at the top of the team or be, you know, winning from the team or whatever. And I also found out that I actually really enjoyed. You know, I really enjoyed distance running and, and, and endurance running. And so I started running then. I did, you know, running and triathlon through uh, junior high and high school. And then I ran in college at uh, Texas A&M University and then started started coaching uh, when I was really young, 16 years old. Uh, I coached for my summer track uh, for my summer track club uh, in Dallas when I would go back uh, back home from school. And uh, I, I really kind of fell in love with the whole coaching process at that point, just working with, you know, elementary school kids, teaching them how to run over hurdles and, you know, proper long jump technique and setting them up in the blocks and, you know, taking them around to meets all around the state of Texas and things like that. And uh, so I transitioned that into uh, a remote-based endurance uh, coaching practice in, in, in 2002, once I graduated from from Texas A&M which at the, which at the time was really not even a thing i mean the fact that we could coach people from a from a remote setting wasn't it, it, it was not common practice at the time the tools were very rudimentary and raw um and uh not not very easy not very user friendly to use especially as we know as we know them uh, nowadays and i've really been doing that ever since you know just working with Cyclists, run, runners, triathletes, um, mountain bikers, you kind of name it. And then over the course of the past really five or seven years have been, you know, really focused on 
on, on trail and ultra running specifically and, and, and kind of bringing coaching to those athletes. That's really interesting to think about you being like on the forefront of this coaching style and like remote coaching. Um, did that seem weird to you at the time or was it more like, how come nobody's doing this? Like how did, logistically, like how did you get there? Well, it was both, it was both weird and it was how come nobody's doing this. Um, you know, it, it was so weird. I, I couldn't explain what I did to my mother, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, that's kind of, that, that's kind of the way, that's the easiest way for me to describe it. Like I had this new job, you know, and I had, you know, student debt, just like any other college student, right. Growing up in a middle class family and stuff like that. And, you know, upon exiting, you know, the, upon exiting university and kind of going into the workforce, you know, most people could describe what they do, right? Okay. I'm in marketing, I'm an engineer, you know, blah, 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 blah. I, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Right. I mean, I just couldn't come up with an eloquent way to describe what remote based endurance coaching was to, to my mother. But, but at the same time, I was wondering why more people, you know, more people didn't do it. Um, the, the marketplace at the time was, was really, really, really young and not very well developed. And we probably spent, you know, the first four or five years, uh, and we being the, the collection of coaches and, and folks at CTS. And then also I would extend that over to the folks at training peaks who, who, uh, who developed a lot of the, the, the initial and, and probably the gold standard tool right now that endurance coaches use. We spent, you know, four five, six years trying to educate people on what this whole remote based endurance coaching thing was and how you could do it correctly. Um, that was a big, big part of the whole, you know, of the whole marketplace and in, in the early 2000s is just demonstrating to athletes and coaches that it's possible. Here's how it's possible. Here's how the tools work and on and on and on and on. And, and once everybody, you know, once people started to kind of warm up to the fact that you could actually do this for a living, then, then, then I would say it actually kind of, kind of really took off from a, from, from a business standpoint and then also from an athlete adoption standpoint. So, Let's talk about you coaching when you're 16 in these, you know, very young days. I take it that the instruction you're giving is very specifically related to your own practice. You know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I've come before you, you're coaching elementary students. You're like, this is what I've learned. This is kind of what works for me. Is that accurate? And then I guess the related question is, when did you start taking, I guess, a more formal study of coaching and sort of where, where did, where and when did it go beyond just like your own personal experience and ideas to where you really started trying to get a lay of the landscape in terms of physiology and say nutrition and the whole sort of science of running? Well, it was actually a pretty quick progression. Um, so co coaching is a, a pretty strong way to describe what I was actually doing there you go, uh, yeah. with this youth track and field team. You yeah. know, I mean, half <laughs> it's just babysitting, right? Um, but, you know, there is some, especially with some of the older kids, 13, 14, you know, 15 years old, um, you know, they, they, they understand enough and they want to get good. And, you know, you actually have to put some kind of reasonable strategy behind, uh, behind what they're doing. 
And at the time, I would say it was it was fairly heavily weighted towards um, towards my own experience, and then also what I could just pick up from other coaches. You know, I mean, I'd go around to track meets, and you know, I'd been running for long enough uh, at that point where I had, you know, I had you know not only people coaching me, but I had met several coaches, and they would kind of give me you know, advice and things like that on, on how to do things. And then when I was 18, when I was finally of age or whatever, USA track and field determines to be of age, I actually went and got, you know, certified via USA track and field. And I, I, I might've, I can't imagine that there was many or any people younger than me that was actually going through that process, um, at, at that time and started to take some formal steps to like figuring this out from, a like from a traditional education standpoint, um, but throughout that entire course, it's always been a blend of my own experience, getting some degree of what I would call like formalized or institutionalized type of education, and then doing a lot of self-study. Like I think that those kind of three pillars uh, really throughout the, you know, almost the entirety of my, my coaching career, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried to hit those, uh, on a consistent basis, kind of irrespective of the, uh, of the sport or the athletes that I, that I was working with. So I guess with that in mind, it kind of makes me want to transition to your book, Training Essential for Ultra Running. How did you kind of come up with the idea to write that? And what did you feel like you were feeling with writing that book? Cause it was definitely super progressive. Like there hadn't been a book of like, here's how to train to run an ultra marathon. <laughs> well, you put so, some of it was just, so first off, I'm a very reluctant writer. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a writer by trade. I'm not a, I'm not a practice writer. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm very honestly and very honest and very critical of my own writing just because I'm just, it's just, it just doesn't come very natural to me. Um, but just throughout when I started to move into ultra marathon, uh, uh, coaching and training, I was enormously frustrated by the lack of information that was actually out there. Um, when I, when I worked with, uh, cyclists and triathlete triathletes and marathon runners, I could go and I could find whatever information I wanted to. You know, cycling was very um, progressive at the time. You know, the use of power meters was starting to become very prevalent. And we had, you know, and that advanced the um, that that advanced kind of the know-how of the sport uh, very rapidly because we could see, you know, from a uh, from a power perspective, like what was going on during training, what what was going on during the races, how we could prepare athletes, and we could analyze that in a in in a fairly meticulous fashion. But when I moved into ultra running, there was nothing, you know, if I tried to even look at, you know, what are the demands of a hundred mile ultra marathon run that there was, there was absolutely nothing out there to, uh, and if you counterbalance that with, you know, other sports like marathon and you, you could at the time, right, you could pinpoint that pretty quick. You could see, okay, you know, I've got a two hour and 50 minute marathon or they're going to be running at, you know, X percent of their lactate threshold or X percent of their VO2 max. Here's the strain on the system. Here's how many calories it's going to require, like all that kind of stuff. None of that really existed in ultra marathon running. And I, and then the coaching that I would see in like the lay publications. So the ultra running magazine, the trail running magazine and things like that. I, I just got so enormously frustrated with, because of the like the level of inaccuracy and the amount of anecdote that was contained uh, in, in a lot of that coaching advice. 
and so I would consistently voice these frustrations to my my co-author Jim Rutberg, who I've worked with for uh, for a really long time. And finally, he he one day said, "Hey, you just need to write a book. Like, if you're just so frustrated with this and that you have a better path, you think you have a better pathway, why don't you just write a book about it?" And he made that argument to me for about two years <laughs> before I actually before I actually like caved in and decided to write it. So that's just a long winded story to say that it's kind of equal parts like. I felt that there was a need in the space for something of a little bit more technical nature in terms of, of, of coaching and advice. And I'd finally gotten to the point where I just like, you know, I wrap my, I could wrap my head around actually writing a book and, 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 and kind of getting through it. Jason, how do you today kind of survey the landscape of, let's call it broadly, like endurance studies, right? And so if we're thinking about that in terms of, cycling versus ultra running and some of these different kind of subsets, I guess, or different categories of quote unquote endurance. Is it still the case that you think it's, um, it's very, very sophisticated or cycling is still kind of leading the way? Like, or do you, do you even think about it in these ways? Like is ultra still feel like the, the, burgeoning industry or the the kind of fledgling it's still maybe a bit behind um where we are on cycling or or what's the landscape look like well i think that there all there will always be like higher quality research in some of the more traditional endurance sports so track like like distance track and field events uh, cycling and triathlon. I just think that there's always going to be better, you know, better research in those sports because they've been, you know, doing them for longer, but also the data that you can capture in, you know, in a lab, in the field, um, is just, it's, it's just more reliable and more accurate and, and easier to do. So there's just going to be a bigger body of, 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 of research there. There has been over the course of maybe the last seven years or so, there's been some, some really good attempts and some really good progress, uh, by researchers that are looking at trail and ultra marathon running. Um, it, it is by no means though, on the scale of, you know, a, 10,000 meter track runner. I, I have an encyclopedia, um, in my, uh, in my office that the local library gave me because I was, I was using it so much. And it's, it's an encyclopedia that the international Olympic committee put out on how to train for every single type of track and field event that is, that is out there from the field events, the, you know, hammer throw, shot put, high jump, pole vault, the sprints, the relays, the distance events and things like that. And there's, there's probably, I don't know, 1500 pages or something like that, just on the 5,000 and the 10,000 alone, you know, that, so, so that body of work would probably encompass all that, that the international Olympic committee put out would, would probably eclipse actually all of the research that we can find on ultra marathon running. So it's never going to, it's never going to surpass what we know about some of these traditional events, but it's, it's, it's getting closer and closer and closer every day. How often do you find individuals who are just kind of the anomaly, you know, and you're like, man, we are getting more and more sophisticated in terms of thinking about how much training, what type of training, what kind of recovery and rest. And then there just are folks where you're like, 
man, this just doesn't make sense. Or do you see this? Or, or for the most part with the people you work with and you work with a wide range of folks, is it like, no, the people that we find getting the best results are typically sticking and really executing well the program we lay out? Well, in, in ultra running, uh, it's it's more so the case where the anomaly can come in and do really well. And, and that's just simply because the density of competition within the ultra running disciplines, it's just not as high as you have at the marathon or the 10,000 meters or, you know, any, any of those other types of events. And so if you're talking about anomalies, like the people who you kind of look at and go, God, how do they achieve that result? Cause they're doing a lot of stupid stuff. Like you see, you see that, you see that a lot in ultra running. Right. And it's just cause it, it's just cause the competition is in a stance. You, you more, you very rarely see that, or I guess not as often, um, you not as often will see that in the traditional track and field events, you know, this last, you know, 14 days, the world championships were, were, were in Doha. It's very rare that you see athletes that are just doing nonsensical type of training that win medals at that event. You, you find them, right? You find them. They're absolutely still out there, but more often than not, you have to have the right environment with the right, with, or sorry, the right athlete and the right environment with the right type of training that, that, that creates, you know, metal quality, uh, success at a world championship or, 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 or an Olympic event. Ultra running is just not there. You know, there's just not as many, you know, there's just not as, there's just not as high quality competition as there is in those types of things. There's a lot of really, really good ultra runners out there, but you'd be hard pressed to say that the Western States 100 is more competitive than the New York city marathon or something like that. Like you just could not, you couldn't, you couldn't rationalize that in any way. With how you guys coach, how important do you think for athletes to have that individualized training then? Because I mean, there's people who you look at who train high quality workouts, but do like 60 miles a week versus, you know, the people who are still winning, but running like hundred plus mile weeks. How do you think that comes into play when looking at like individual athletes? Yeah, the individualization of training is huge. And once again, to kind of take you through my perspective on the entire day of coaching, you know, I, I, I've coached anywhere from two athletes at a time to over 200 athletes at a time. And, um, when I was coaching over 200 athletes at a time, it, it was a lot of copy and paste and, you know, just regurgitating, you know, one training from one athlete to the other. And, and that works, but that only works to a certain extent when you can really individualize and customize a training for an individual that, that starts to make a marked difference. And what I'll also say is that it makes more of a difference the more experienced an athlete actually is. And we, we tell this to our, to, to especially our, our younger coaches all the time, that if you get an athlete that only has, you know, one, two, three years of experience in a sport, you sure as, you sure as heck better be able to get improvements out of that athlete. Like as long as you're not screwing up and you're being reasonable with your training, that athlete with very little experience should should see reasonable improvement through the first three to five years of their athletic journey. It's after that, you know, that three to five year mark uh, is when those those gains start to become harder and harder to actually realize. And that's when a really smart, highly individualized program is is, is really going to shine through. Um, and so that that's why when 
you know, athletes are kind of initially coming to us, they might be able to get away with a static training program or a copy and paste training program and things like that. If they're just, you know, if they're just really, really new, because as long as they don't get hurt, they'll see progress, right? They might see a little bit more progress with something super sophisticated, but it's probably, you know, it's probably, it's probably a very small advantage. It's only when they get, you know, three to five years into it, that, that, that becomes really critical. And mo- most ultra marathon runners are in that situation, right? There's only very few people that just kind of like plop down, you know, with no running experience and decided to do an ultra, um, to where that, you know, that, that unindividualized or generic approach is actually going to work in a reasonable fashion for them. And that, I guess, makes me also think, like, what do you feel or think about these, like, I mean, myself included, but younger people who are coming into the sport with, like, either a very different background, like high school cross country or no background, and then jumping straight into the super long distance stuff. What do you think, like, how is that changing the field of training and coaching? And what do you think that looks like? Uh, I think it's awesome. You know, a lot of people like kind of poo poo on that because we've got this like blueprint stuck in our minds from track and field running and in the, in the collegiate uh, progression from a college program to marathoning that you run, you know, the 5k and the 1500 meters in college. And then maybe in your senior year, you run the 10,000. And then once you graduate from college, you try to find some, you know, some track club or some running club to join. And then, you know, you do a bunch of road races and then three years down the line, when you're a little bit, you know, older, you decide to graduate to, to, uh, the marathon in that, you know, very progressive type of fashion. That doesn't have to be the case in ultra marathon running. You don't have to go through this long, over convoluted training arc from, you know, from training for 5Ks to training for 10Ks to training for half marathons to training for marathons to training to a 50K to training for a 50 mile. It, it doesn't have to be that way. And young athletes are are resilient enough that they can they can pick things up fairly fairly quickly as long as they're smart about it in training. And one of the great things about ultra running is, is a lot of it is done as a relatively low intensity. And I think that's what screws up a lot of people's thought process behind, okay, you need, you know, five years to train for your fit for a 50 mile or something like that. It's because they've just got, you know, this, uh, this notion in their head that all the training and preparation is going to be of a, of a super high intensity variety, like they see in 10,000 meter running. And that's just not the case. So I think it's really cool. I I, I've, I really have a lot of respect for uh, what you guys have done there over at Western. I think that's a really it's a really neat program that you guys have. And ultra running is always going to be a sport that attracts people from a wide variety of backgrounds. And I just think that's something that's that's just just really neat uh, neat and unique about it. I'd love to hear more about uh, some of your favorite. Uh, you referred to it as nonsensical training. <laughs> so, uh, any favorites or least favorites, I guess? Uh, uh, we could spend four <laughs> hours doing this. Uh, if you would have given me 10 minutes, I could have had a list of like 30 of them. <laughs> but the one that comes to the, just the top of mind, and this is just because we had a continuing ad with our uh, coaching staff last week on the subject, is... I'll, I'll broaden the area out to heat acclimation. So how you can get an athlete prepared for a hot weather event, which is really ironic, right? Just having, uh, the world champ, the track and field world championships in Doha and kind of what happened during the marathon and the race walk events, uh, out there. But the, the, uh, the way that athletes prepare for that 
when I, I'll tell you when I first started working with ultra marathon, uh, runners kind of in the mid two thousands, the classic example was the Badwater crew. You know, the people that were training for that event, they did the stupidest stuff imaginable. <laughs> I mean, they'd run on treadmills, you know, with their, you know, with the dryer, uh, vent kind of aimed at them and kind of create this like little hot box in their, in their, uh, a laundry room and things like that. But even even now, where we know we know definitively, there is a priority order that you can of tools you can use to get heat acclimated. Right, you can use a sauna or a hot tub. Those are kind of the the highest quality things that you can use. You can exercise in a hot environment, and that's that's good, but not as good as the high quality sauna or or hot tubs that you can use. Um, and then you can come with come up with four or five of the tools kind of down the line. When I, when I see people, just to answer your question directly, when I see people who are trying to acclimate to a hot weather event that are using something like overdressed running, right? They're running around in a parka and sweatpants and things like that. When they have access to a sauna and or a hot tub, that to me is what is nonsensical. And that, that might seem like, like, like trivial, right? Well, you know, either one's kind of kind of do the job. But when I see coaches and purveyors of advice, right, doing that, when I know they have access to a sauna, what that just tells me is they're just not looking at the research and the data that is very clear on which one of those modalities is more effective the, uh, than the other and how it impacts training and things like that. And so, you know, that that's just that's just one example. But I could go down a whole litany of them, including you know, this fixation that we have on fat adaptation and, uh, you know, weight vests while hiking and uh, uh, barefoot, run, you know, barefoot and minimalist running, which is really popular kind of in the late 2000s. And fortunately now it's kind of gone out, gone out of favor now that everybody's hurt and has stress fractures from doing that. Um, but it, anyway, it's just been kind of riddled with with a lot of those uh, very similar examples. <laughs> this must mean you hate like every boxing movie ever made, right? Where they're always, there's always the like montage where they're running around wearing like four sweatshirts and uh, you're like, dude, just get in a sauna. Uh, well, I, I watched uh, Creed the first one on a flight recently. I know the second, the second one's actually on uh, United airlines now, but maybe eight months ago or so I watched the first Creed and they've got a scene where he's using one of like those, uh, one of those altitude masks that yeah. just restrict your breathing. That looks like Bane, you know, the character yeah. Bane, <laughs> yep. Batman. And I looked at that and I was like, oh, God, like, uh, which may, like may, maybe in a combat sports situation, because it actually does train your respiratory, respiratory muscles to a certain extent, maybe in a combat sports setting could be a good use case for it. But when you're calling it an altitude mask, which they had to do for, you know, they did that for the first maybe five years of that product in existence. And, fi and finally, they were, they had to remove that label, right? Because it was because it was inaccurate and i think i think the ftc made them remove it eventually but it, but anyway yeah when i saw, when i see things like that i just kind of i just kind of shake my head more often though what what kind of gets me is and i I've, I've unsubscribed to 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 magazines and newsletters and things like that because of this but when i see things like training architecture or if i see like physiological terms not 
used correctly, particularly by coaches or people in the industry that should know better. That just really irks me because we've got to hold ourselves to higher standards. Like if you're a coach in the industry and you don't know the difference between efficiency and economy, or you can't describe running economy correctly or whatever it is, like you, you need to hold yourself to a higher standard to be able to do those things because we've done that in other sports. Right. I mean, I, I, I've been through the, the, the cycling transition where we were all insistent that coaches be able to train athletes with power meters and the coaches that were resistant to that or could not didn't think the tool was useful or didn't understand the, the science or the physiology behind using a power meter. They eventually got pushed out of market. You know, and they, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not coaching anymore. I think the same thing will happen in trail and ultra running. It just takes time for the, for the market to kind of shake it out. Do you feel like there's a level at all that like social media has played into it? Cause I feel like a lot of like, you see really high end athletes doing X or Y or Z. And then everyone's like, oh, well, if so-and-so is doing this, it must work. So I must do this diet or run in a weighted vest or whatever. Do you think that's played a, a role in that? Yeah. So social media, the, the way that I like to describe that is it allows people to punch above their weight, right? So it allows people who maybe don't, maybe they don't have like the technical expertise that they should, they can kind of punch above their weight because they can build a big audience who doesn't know any better and they can disseminate information that is of a very high quality, but they're building up that audience, not because of the quality of information that they're delivering, but for some other aspect right? They're good at social media. They're good looking. They take nice pictures, you know, whatever else it is. And so in that sense, it allows that person to punch above their weight in my, in my phraseology from a knowledge dissemination standpoint. Right. Um, so yeah, absolutely. That does have, you know, that, 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 that does have an effect on things, but I still think that long-term the athletes are smart and they shake those things out. Like they're able because there's, you know, there's good information out there. It just takes time for, you know, people to kind of latch onto it. Um, so I kind of put, you know, a little bit of faith in humanity, so to speak, and just say that, listen, it's it, all that stuff is going to like come out in the wash in the long term. You can have people that can have those two, three, four year pops of finding success, you, leveraging social media uh, in, in, the, in the coaching and kind of advice world. But ultimately, for, for, almost, for almost everybody, that kind of runs its course because there's nothing authentic to really stand on. This is super fun. I realized that I just really enjoy getting like aiming questions at someone and getting them fired up about things they think are dumb. So Jason, I am kind of tempted to like, turn this into the four hour conversation and just keep you going. Wheel away. I'll, I'll go all day on it. Trust me. So, um, you mentioned like the barefoot, you know, running thing. And, and if we, if we don't want to talk about barefoot, if we bracket that for a minute, but kind of get a little bit more into the minimalist versus maximalist question, I guess one, and this is probably just me, I don't feel like I hear that much debate on this issue these days, which, which, so I'd be curious if you're like, well, then you're just not like in the right circles at the moment, but it feels like this has maybe, this isn't as loud of a thing or as prominent of a question as maybe it had been. I will also say like, I mean, I find myself still thinking that there are good reasons to maybe roll 
a bit more minimalist as opposed to a bit more maximalist. But um, I'd be very curious to hear someone like you who is actually looking in, at studies and, and talking with athletes and looking at injuries and the like, where you kind of are, again, not so much on like going really close to full barefoot, but just in this like minimalist versus maximalist. Okay. First off, how old are you? 44. So you can, you can go back to 2009, right? When born to run was published. Yep. And if you, if you put yourself in that time frame, and we'll, we'll widen it out a little bit, right? 2005 to 2013 or something like that, right? You put yourself in that time frame. It was in fuego. Oh, yeah. Yep, it, for sure. A, abs, absolutely in fuego. You know, Vibram, I, mean, I, you know, I can go down to my local running store and they would have five different pairs of Vibram five fingers, very begrudgingly so. But they would have them just because they were selling and they're selling like hotcakes. There was a time where there's this constellation of events, mainly fueled by Born to Run, but also there were some prominent athletes, right? And there was also that that were advocates for barefoot running. And then also um, there was a lot of research coming out at the time, right, that in, that indicated that if you ran barefoot, you could teach yourself, you know, to run more, I'll use the word efficiently, right? You can run more efficiently and then therefore reduce your likelihood or susceptibility to injury. So everybody kind of jumped on this wagon for five to seven years. Then I'm going to trivialize the story for brevity's sake. <laughs> then everybody got hurt. Vibram got <laughs> Vibram got sued. They did get sued. Right. Right. Three million dollar class action lawsuit. Somebody fact check me on that. It might have actually been five million dollars. Anyway, class action lawsuit. And the the combination of those events pushed this minimalism out of favor and kind of brought it back to the I wouldn't say it was immediately brought back to the balance, but eventually was brought back to the balance of selling reasonable shoes and putting people in shoes that fit them, not a type of shoe that fit everybody. Um, so anyway, I mean, that's an example just to harp on one of my earlier points where the market actually figured it out. It took them a while to do it, right? Five or seven years to actually figure it out. And unfortunately, it took a lot of people getting stress fractures <laughs> to, to, to figure it out. But long term, now you might go into a run, you might go into five running stores and maybe one of them has a pair of Vibram five fingers. You'll probably more often than not see them in like outdoor stores or Dick's Sporting Goods, kind of the generalist uh, type of stores versus specialty running stores. So it's just, you know, once again, it's just an example of everybody gets on the hype train. That hype train eventually runs out of steam. People figure out a better, more reasonable solution. And the market kind of comes back to the kind of kind of comes back to the middle. Meanwhile, people like myself, right, and other, you know, and other reasonable practitioners, whether they're coaches or physiologists or biomechanists or whatever, are just pulling our hair out. And I remember when the barefoot and minimalist craze was going around, saying to my saying to my colleagues in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2011, everybody's going to get hurt. People are going to start to get injured. They're going to get stress fractures. They're going to do too much too soon. The benefits of doing this are really, really limited and the risks are very, very big. And it just took a while for that to, to, to eventually play out into what it is now where people are just being a whole lot more reasonable about it. But you're right. You don't see that as much anymore. So to come back to where you are 
at the moment in terms of, um, and some people I'm sure listening to this will not be psyched on me wanting to just push aside kind of the more quote unquote barefoot element. Like let's just skip the five finger, right? But in thinking about a firmer platform as opposed to a squishier, more cushioned platform or, you know, less stack height as opposed to more stack height, are you seeing things in your in the research or in your work with athletes where like is there anything like you maybe want to get into a shoe uh, with as little stack height as you can tolerate or the opposite you want to get into a shoe with the most stack height you can tolerate are there conversations like that around the actual footwear here's the conversation i have with my athletes Go to your specialty running store, find a shoe that your feet are comfortable in and run in that, period. I don't have any conversations about stack height or the amount of, you know, heel to toe drop or the lacing patterns or, you know, any of that other nonsense. Go to your local running store, find a pair of shoes that are comfortable and then we'll go with that. And then if for whatever reason, some element of the shoe isn't comfortable, right? and you could pick, you know, 10 different elements, then we'll start to triage. Okay, let's go with this model. Let's go with that model. Okay, you really like the cushioning in this shoe, but you didn't like the width. Okay, let's keep the same cushioning and we'll go to a different width type of shoe. The the only caveat to that, and I'm going to poo-poo on ultra for a second, which I don't mind doing, um, is I steer people away from this, from any sort of zero drop platform. And I just... Over the over the course of coaching many many people and also knowing a lot of their uh, a lot of their athletes that dislike their shoes as well, it's it, they just athletes just tend to be more injury susceptible in those shoes, particularly those with uh, chronic Achilles tendinopathies and things like that. So I try I don't I will initially steer them away from either a minimalist shoe. Or zeros drop shoe. Those are two of my two 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 of the things that I'll have athletes avoid. The caveat to that is I have athletes that work great in a zero drop shoe. They're uninjured. They like the way the shoe fits. And if and if it's comfortable on your foot, great, go ahead and wear it. But if you're looking for a new shoe to kind of run in, I steer them away from those those types of platforms. So you recently did the tour de Giants. I want to know about that because that is a 330 kilometer race. What did that play out like? What was like, just give us the rundown of that experience. Uh, This is another four hour podcast. (laughs) We Uh, got, we got time, Jason. Oh man. No, it was long. You know, I mean, it took me, you know, over four, four days and an hour to do just to give some perspective on it. Um, there's 80,000 feet of climbing, 24,000 meters of climbing, uh, for those that are using the metric system. And just to give you a little bit of perspective, so it's, it's a little over 200 miles, 80,000 feet of climbing. If you look at the Hard Rock 100 in the United States, which is kind of lauded as the you know, hardest 100 mile, 100 miler out there, that has 32,000 feet of climbing and 100 miles. So you're looking at mile for mile, something that just has more elevation gain, elevation loss than, uh, than, than, than hard rock and, and not a trivial amount more I might add. So, um, it's a, it's a really, it's a really difficult race. It's in the Aosta Valley of Italy, which is in the Northern part, kind of near the French border. 
it starts and ends in Cormier, which most people will recognize as the it's the halfway point for the UTMB race, so the 80 kilometer point for uh, uh, for UTMB, and it makes a big loop or uh, south of Cormier just all around the Alsta Valley and tags all these, you know, beautiful, uh, beautiful coals. Um, so really cool event, really hard, something that was way kind of way, way, way outside my normal, my normal or anything that I've ever really done. I mean, I've done hard rock and bad water and Western States and Wasatch and you kind of name it, but this is way above and beyond and anything else, but a a really cool experience. And to sum it up, I, I had a lot of everything. I had a lot of good. I had a lot of, you know, bad, and I had a lot of ugly throughout the, throughout the race. But for, but fortunately I was able to get my, get my, get my way around the whole Valley and kind of live to tell the tale. <laughs> was that your first time ever running like a 200 plus mile race? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, once again, I've done bad water, which is you know, 135 miles, but it, it's not even close. I mean, you know, hard rock and, you know, hard rock might take me 30 hours, you know, a little over 30 hours. And this is three times that, right. I mean, lit- literally three times the duration. So it's just a different, you know, it's just a whole different deal. I, I don't think we should put all these 200 milers on the same comparative level, although the distance, you know, obviously normalizes them. Uh, I was at, I was literally texting with one of my athletes who wants to do Tour de Jeans, uh next year, and we were talking about the setup for it. And um, he was inquiring as to whether you know he should do another 200 miler. And I'm like, listen, it's not that like if you go out and do like Bigfoot or Tahoe or something like that, it's not even that similar because you might finish that race in 50 or 60 hours, but you're going to finish Tour de Jeans in. 80 to 90 hours. And that's a totally different kettle of fish. I mean, you're talking about over a whole day of running of additional running. And so the sleep patterns are markedly different that you would use the rest strategy. The terrain is obviously very, very different. So it's like, listen, even though it's a 200 mile race, I don't, I don't think it's good training for it just because it's too, it's just too dissimilar. And it just takes so inordinately long to recover from, which I'm now realizing. Yeah. All right. So do you feel like you're still recovering? Oh, for sure. For sure. And, you know, going back to that earlier point that I mentioned where I try to lean on um, my own experiences, what I can uh, kind of uh, draw draw from the research and then other people's expertise, right? This is one area where two of those are actually in conflict, um, because if you look at a lot of the early um, and, and the reason I say early is just because they haven't done much on it. A lot of the early research on 200 mile events, it, they actually the, the indication is, is there's actually less muscular damage on those events and at Tour de Jean specifically is one of the races that they studied than there is in 100 mile races. So when you compare like people who finished Tour de Giants to people who finished UTMB, which is a you know 160K or 100 mile race in the same area, the, the, the muscular damage that's induced is not, not even a trivial amount, a fairly significant amount less in the 200 mile event, if you just look at the research. Now, that's only one, that's only one aspect of fatigue in the subsequent recovery that you need from races, but it would give you the indication that, ah, you know, if you recovered, you know, in two weeks from UTMB, you should recover in 10 days 
from Tour de Giants, right? It'd be easy to come to that conclusion. After having experienced the event, no way. Like, no, like, no, like, no, 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 no way. Like, you need to put more emphasis on, you know, how other aspects recover, just musculoskeletally. You got to get back on the right sleep patterns, how you get all your hormones back in line and things like that. So, anyway, it's just, I, I, I'm kind of using it now, uh, like in our, in our coaching circles is a little bit of a learning lesson to distinguish between what you can tease out from the research and what you can tease out from experience. That's really interesting. Cause I'm feeling pretty confident in assuming that you went into this race with a good level of sort of preparation and thinking about the different elements and factors and the like, and then, but then you just have to go do it. And you're like, that's very different, right? Like whether it's talking with people or looking at research and the like that versus the experience of just getting out there. And I, I love that we said, so how was that th 330 kilometer race? And your answer was, it was long. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you know, how else do you, like, how else do you describe it? You know, I mean, it's, it, it had a little bit of, like I said, it had a little bit of everything. I really enjoyed, so I follow you on social media, and I just loved the, like, videos that you would post during it. And I was like, I feel like I'm doing this with you, but also I don't yeah. have to do this, and it's great. Like, yeah. I'll live vicariously through you. Yeah, you know, once again, I try to blend, like, my own, you know, training and racing and things like that with the experience that I get from my, with the athletes that I work with and the collective lot of athletes that we have at CTS. And then also, you know, drawing on the research side and experiencing from other people. So that's, that's, def, that, that's definitely one, one element of, of it for sure. If anything, I try not to lean on it too much, right? I always mention this to people because I'm, I, and I know this about myself. Um, I'm a kinesthetic learner by nature, right? I don't read instruction manuals. I'd rather just like pull all the stuff out of the box and figure out how to put the thing together, you know? And, um, because, because of that, I always have to be really mindful when I go out and I do, when I do races that I'm not automatically kind of transplanting that experience onto another athlete. Like, oh, well, you know, I thought this part of the Wasatch course was blah, blah, blah when I did it. Right. I always, I always try to put that into, I always take that as just one piece of the whole puzzle on how to how to solve whatever, you know, kind of training, whatever sort of training, uh, problem. It's a, it's an important piece. Certainly. I don't think it's the most important piece, like my own experience. I don't think that's the most important piece by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, it's, it's, it's definitely something to take into consideration. I wrote all my notes down from this event just to, you know, make sure I could remember what each section was kind of like and some of the takeaways and stuff like that. But yeah, it's a, I always try to try to create a blend of everything. Interestingly enough, though, Maddie, to your point, people are drawn more towards like the personal experiences than they are the other things, you know, and that's just because they people will identify with other people. Right. So when I put those types of things out, like you're not the first person to kind of give me that comment. My, my first reaction is, 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 OK, well, that was just my experience. Right. There's 700 other people out there that might have had a different one. Oh, for sure. I think too, there's just that level of like authenticity that sometimes you don't fully get from when people do races. Like at least I feel from social media, people will be like, oh, that was amazing and 100% fun. It's like, well, I know that you had lows during <laughs> your yeah, ultra. No. Like if you didn't, 
you're crazy and <laughs> I admire you, but yeah, we need more authenticity in social media. I'll give you that. Totally. You know what though? You're starting to see it. I, I actually think that you're starting to see it more and more like just people being real, you know, just like, Hey, you know, I thought about doing this today and it was a bad idea and I'm going to go do something else. And they just put that out there and that resonates with people. So anyway, maybe the tide on that's starting to change. Who knows? Jason, I'm interested in asking you to look into your crystal ball and let's fast forward, say 10 years from now. What's your guess about where we're going to be in the running landscape? Like, do you think in 10 years, it's like, we're going to be looking at, it's going to be kind of common that people are now, you're talking about a 330 kilometer. Are we going to be looking at the 500 kilometer? Are we just going to continue this longer and longer thing? Or do you think we'll be seeing maybe a pull back from that? Or what else? What else are your predictions uh, a decade from now? Uh, I, I think that we'll just continue to see different, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the whole running landscape, not just trail and ultra running specifically, but I just think that we'll continue to see different or other iterations of trying to be different. And you can, you, you know, once again, you can remember, you know, the color runs kind of came and went and the obstacle run, uh, obstacle course runs kind of came and they, and they stuck right to where that's a really popular, you know, running category right now. Um, so I don't think, and I think duration is, is part of that different equation, right? That's part of races kind of diversifying from the standard, you know, 10 K half marathon, marathon, uh, type of discipline and people, and people are obviously craving that type of diversification. Otherwise these other races wouldn't have either stuck around for as long as they did, like in terms of the color runs or had continued to have the success that they do have, like an obstacle course racing. So I think we'll continue to see that over the next, you know, 10 years, who knows what I, I'm back. My crystal ball is not good enough to determine what they're going to be. Otherwise I wouldn't be coaching and I'd like start up the next (laughs) hot fad, you know, running thing and like ride that wave until it was over. But, uh, I, I do think that we'll just start to see diff like, iterations of just being different of which the distance of the race will start to play a component of that. And I I hope this is, I hope statement and I think statement, but I hope that our fixation on standard distances starts to be balanced out with distances that are naturally created from the terrain. And this is obviously specific to trail and ultra running. Like when I run a 50 mile race or if I have athletes that run a 50 mile race and there's like, you know, 10% of the race that's convoluted just to get the distance close. It, it just irritates me so much. Like just go and like run from this, you know, this town to this town or this peak to this peak over this pass or something like that. And whatever the distance is, the distance is, it doesn't have to be 50 K or 50 miles or hundred K or hundred miles or whatever. And none of those are that exact distance, by the way, like, but they try to get it as close as possible. I just hope that trail running starts to adopt the perspective that we're going to utilize the landscape in a more, in, in just a more natural way and natural, like flowing way from place to place than trying to artificially create the course around some predetermined, you know, exact distance. Do you see anything trending that way? Or do you, does this now sound like you are the lone person shouting this against 
you know, all the trends. Yeah, usually I'm the lone person shouting this <laughs> in general. So trends that's, like, else. that's like your thing. No, but I mean, I go back to one of my athletes, Dakota. He ran the first few iterations of the Telluride Mountain Run, which is this big loop around Telluride. You guys are probably familiar with it. And the distance on that is like 38 miles or something. Like it's it's not standard, right? But who cares? Right. I mean, who cares? It's a cool race. It, you know, takes kind of a natural loop around the town and you can see some great peaks and run on some cool trails. And whether it's 38 miles or 41 miles or, you know, some weird distance, you know, who cares? Uh, you're starting to see a lit like a little bit more of it. Um, but I, I honestly think that the trail running community would be well served to just say that this is like like in the case of the Telluride Mountain Run, this is the Telluride Mountain Run not the Telluride 40, right? Or the, you know, sit like city dash distance or area slash distance. Like, no, this is the run. It features the area. It features these cool assets, you know, these cool geographical or terrain features on the area. I just really hope that that starts to gr- grab some additional foothold. I would just love to hear you say a bit more either, and maybe I can ask you to do both, to talk a little bit about some of the things that you find most intriguing, most interesting, most worthy of um, celebrating in the current running scene. And then the flip of that is some of the things that again, and you've spoken to some of these already, but some of the things where you just like think we're, we're a bit off track, we could be doing this better. Well, so I'll go, I'll go back to the word intriguing, right? You mentioned that kind of right off the bat. And I I think that in a lot of cases, simply the, the level of racing and the, like the, back to an earlier word that I used, the density of competition across certain races, particularly the longer ones is in, in some cases just fantastic. And, and really, really neat to see. I mean, I had the opportunity this year to just like I have, you know, for the last several years to go out to Western States and watch that race unfold. And I was at the Pointed Rocks aid station. They were f- like full on racing for the whole shot to the single track, like a cross country mountain biker. I mean, it, it was it was unbelievable. Both of their pacers had just kind of backed off and kind of said, OK, you girls just, you know, duke it, duke it out or whatever. But to see that after like 94 miles of a 100 mile race, like to actually like wit- like witness it, I wish there were more like cameras and drones and stuff like that following around, following them around was 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 just absolutely remarkable to see. Um, so. And, and other and other races have, have had similar patterns where the racing goes on for hours and hours and hours and hours. And I think that part of it is is really cool. The flip side to that is that some of these events, and I'll go back to the 200 milers that we were talking about earlier, we have no context for how good the performance actually is. And in many cases, we put these performances and then therefore the athletes that achieve them up on these pedestals. And yeah, they've worked really hard for the achievement, right? They've dug, you know, dug deep and trained hard and, you know, put their, you know, kind of put their souls on the line in, in a lot of cases to win whatever race. But I think a lot of times we overinflate what the accomplishment is because there's very little, if any, performance context behind what they what what they actually did um t- time will rectify that 
right? 10 years from now, we're going to look back at some of these 200 mile performances and go, ah, well, that really wasn't that good now that so-and-so has done this, right? Just like we look back at, you know, some of the Western States performances from 10 or 15 years ago. And now that we have context of, you know, better and better runners kind of coming into it, it's just a different era. So, so, so anyway, that, that performance element, I think has both the intriguing side and the overinflated side all wrapped up in it. And it just depends on how, like how you're looking, like how you're looking at it to ascertain which, you know, which side of the fence that you're on with any of those. Is the primary thing you think we just need more races, more events to provide this context, or are there other things that you are, that you have in mind when thinking about how we evaluate performances? Well, I just think we need more people to do the races, right? More, more good athletes to come in, more races to actually happen. Like, I just think it's t- so. If you get a new race, right? Somebody's going to set a course record the first year. Yeah. Right. You're like, what does that mean? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think a lot of times we go, oh my god, so and so set an eight hour course record on this race that has been run for two years. You know, great. That 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 result might stand the test of time. Right. It might. It might stand for, you know, 20, 20, 30 years. It might be that good of a performance. But you really don't know, because especially in a trail running setting, you know, if you have a new race, let's just say there's 200 people that have run it. And if you run the race twice, that means only 400 people have run the race. That's not a very good sample size in terms of getting a, you know, a really high quality performance out on a course. So anyway, I just think that 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 that's just going to take a little bit more time. And I think I, I think that everybody, although I love putting athletes on pedestals, right, I'm a coach, I love celebrating their performances and things like that. I do think that we'd all, all be well served, especially with some of like the newer events and newer distances and things like that, just to take a pause and go, okay, that's great. But what's the context of this performance, right? How long have we been doing the race? What types of people have been entering the race and, and stuff like that. And you can even say, and you can even say that for some of the kind of more, you know, more longstanding races, you know, to where they just, for whatever reason, haven't attracted, year after year after year, like really high quality, you know, a really, really high quality, really dense, uh, deep competition types of fields. So it's all about like looking at it through, uh, through kind of an unbiased and like a historical lens, I think. Do you feel like there's a way though, to incentivize more people to come to the ultra running world? Because like, if you compare it to the road scene, there's like no money in ultra running. Like, you can't go and win a race and be like, oh, well, I took home a check that, you know, I can take care of my family now. Like, you don't have that in ultra running. So how would you incentivize these races to deepen the field? Well, so there's two aspects to that, right? It's like, how do you grow the whole population of ultra runners, right? Or people that are, that are, that are, that are participating in the sport, right? And then how do you draw in more of the elite competition? And those, those two things are forward uh, feeding uh, mechanisms of each other, right? The more elite athletes and the better the competition is, the more, uh, the more the sport is kind of in the spotlight, 
the more attractive it is for people to participate. Like they see it and they're like, oh, I want to go do that. It looks cool. And the more people that participate, there's a bigger economic base to work from to put incentives out there for people to become elite professional, you know, do it as a living and things like that. So they work uh, in conjunction with each other. Um, I, I My general statement is, is I just think race directors need to put up more prize money. Um, and, and that's not the only answer, but I think if I, I, and I don't think it has to be an astronomical amount of prize money. I mean, there's, there are examples of races here in the U S like the run rabbit run that have put up big prize money and just cannot get their fields to really consistently materialize. So I, I think it's about both bringing the competition to the, uh, to the race and, putting incentives in place for the athletes to actually, uh, to, to, to actually show up. I, I will say though, I will say that if you take a look at the landscape of how a lot of these elite fields materialize, it is extremely difficult to get those competitive races to actually, to actually work out. And it's kind it's kind of a numbers game, you know, I mean, you've just got to invite, you know, quite frankly, a shit ton of people in order for the race to actually work. So if, if a race director invites 30 athletes to their race, you know, 10 of them are going to get hurt in advance. So then your field's kind of whittled down to 20. And out of that 20, in the days before the race, 10 of them are going to decide, decide not to do it for whatever reason. Maybe those people get hurt. Maybe they just have other priorities come up, whatever. So then you're left with a field of of what was once 30 elite athletes is now whittled down to 10 and out of those 10 people, half of them might have a decent race. And so my, my point in that math is that it just takes a lot of people to come together way more so than the top 10, right? It takes a lot of people to come together to get these elite fields to actually materialize into, in, into good races. So it's, it's, it's really, really difficult. And then when you look at the, the broader participation, you know, running is a really accessible sport, right? I mean, all you, all you, all you need, as, as we say, very clichely, all you need is a pair of shoes. And, and to, for the most part, that's actually true. Um, but we can still do, we being the entire community can still do a better job at getting more and people, more people into the sport, particularly ones that live in urban areas and particularly women and uh, uh, particularly minorities of color and from different socioeconomic backgrounds. We collectively as a community can do a better job at bringing more people into the base. And the bigger that base is and the more diversified that base is, the healthier the whole ecosystem of the of, of the sport is going to be as a whole. So when you look at both of those two th- those two sides, yeah, we're doing a good job. Ultra running still continuing to grow. Like you can look at the stats that Ultra Running Magazine presents every year, and they and they very clearly point to the fact that it's a growing sport. But we need to continue. We need to continue to do those things and to 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 kind of progress the sport even further. Man, talk about a big conversation just on that, like, how do we grow? How do we diversify? What are the most effective ways to do that? That's a big and important topic. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, I kind of take it as somewhat of a selfish one, right? Like, I'm obviously in the sport, and the, the healthier the sport is, the more diversified it is, the more economy that's going on in the sport, it, it does me well for a coach. 
But I also think that it's it's a it's a really neat sport to be involved in. And it's like, you know, not to sound too hippy dippy or cliche or woo woo or whatever, but it, it is good for I think it's I think it's good for the like the greater cause of humanity. Like anytime you can even anytime you can participate in something in mass, right, where people will go beyond their like normal physical limits of doing anything right that anytime they have the time they have the opportunity to test those 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 you know types of elements it gives them a different perspective on life right and hopefully they can carry that perspective into their everyday interactions with people and so anyway i just think it's just good for a whole to have a sport that has something like that right where it's just so challenging and it just takes you to the to to the edge of your limits yet all it takes is a pair of shoes to get involved in so anyway i just think it's a healthy it's a healthy thing to have all around I like that you bring that to a point, too, because I think, you know, especially if the younger generations start getting more into it, we have such a bad rap of the young generations being like special snowflakes. And if you can build some adversity through running hard races, maybe that would be less of a stigma. Yeah, I totally agree. And like I said, it's an accessible sport, right? It's easy to get involved in. Even even if you even if you live in an urban area and you don't have the train, you can still run conduit to trip to trail and ultra running. So it's got all these really neat elements where it actually should, you know, where it actually should it, it should flourish given the like the leaders and the influencers in the space right now continue continue to uh, continue to do a good job of being ambassadors for the sport. Mm-hmm. Last question then is talk to us a little bit about where you are with your coaching today. Are you still taking on new folks to work with? Are you kind of maxed out? Yeah, I'm always taking on new athletes. I give myself a little bit of bandwidth where I've always got a, you know, a spot or three open. Um, I only work with between 25 and 30 athletes at a time. And, um, you know, very, very fortunately I have a, I have a pretty high retention rate, just having worked with a lot of these athletes for several years, but I'm always taking on new athletes. Um, and it, and it's really fun. I'm in a position, you know, where I never thought I'd kind of be in where if, if I want to take on an athlete, I'll take them on. If I don't want to take them on, if I think, if I think another situation is better for them, then I'll, I'll, I'll suggest one of our other coaches. And so it's really, it, you know, so I consider myself really, really fortunate that, um, that, that I get to pr- work with people that I, that I just really think are high quality people. And a lot of them are all, all of them are high quality athletes. Obviously some of them are elite athletes, but I coach people all over the board, you know, you know, I've got a woman who is going to be pushing the cutoffs and trying to finish Havelina in a couple of weeks and she's going to need every last minute, you know, of the entire race to, to, to finish it. And that's freaking awesome. Like I love working with athletes like that. And I've got athletes that are going to try to win races and I love, you know, doing that as well. Um, also because we have a, we have a coaching group, right? Right. We've got seven people in our, in our ultra running division. I don't have to be the answer, which I think is really neat. Um, we've got, we've got, people and I have colleagues that I work with that are way better domain expertise, uh, experts don't, they're way better domain experts than I am in certain areas. And they can bring things to the table for an athlete that I can't bring to, to the table. And so quite literally when, you know, people, 
request me as as a coach, which you know, ha- which happens quite often, as you can as you can imagine, I can really look at the situation and say, okay, like what's best for this athlete, right? Not okay, yeah, I'll take you on, right? I can really look at okay, what you know, what do you need as an athlete? What are you training for? You know, what's your personality like? And I can look at our lineup of coaches and say, yeah, you know what, I I'd love to coach you. I think I'm the best person to you know to bring your athletic goals to life. Or I can say, you know what, I think our, you know, coach over here, Corinne would do a way better job than I would, I would do because of whatever, whatever rationale, uh, that is. So I think that's, that's a, that's a really neat thing to have in like the commercial coaching space to have all of those different options because of that individualization component that we talked about earlier, right? Not only the AQ, like scientific skill set that the coach brings to the table, but also their personality, their ability to motivate, their ability to communicate and things like that. All of those play very critical roles in the athletic development process and they're different for each person. And if we can suss that out at the beginning of the relationship and get the, get the right athlete with the right coach, they're going to be way better than if they just pick somebody out of a hat or even, you know, even in a lot of cases have, have me as a coach. So anyway, it's, it's, um, it's a pretty cool situation, pretty cool setup that we have, uh, uh, with, with those athletes that are coming in. Um, Jason, thank you. This really has been a great conversation and really appreciate the perspective. Um, we're, as we said, kind of at the top, you're somebody who is, uh, you're kind of a fixture in the scene, kind of in the middle of it. And so, um, I think, uh, getting your take on a lot of these questions, uh, matters. So, um, really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love talking about this stuff and, uh, yeah, sometimes when people say things like that to me, it makes me feel old. But I'm only I'm only, I'm only 40. I've got a lot of coaching years and a lot of running years ahead of me, hopefully. And uh, hope that you know the next 50, how long have I been coaching now? 17, 18 years. <laughs> right. The next 18 years of my coaching career, I can provide you know a different you know perspective on things that I couldn't you know this time around. I I uh, I don't have any doubt that that's going to be the case. I'm really not worried about you. Uh, having new perspectives, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years and, and new takes on some of this stuff. Uh, of all the things I might be worried about, that's not one of them. So <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> I think you're all right. Uh, that's good. Unless and, and, and for some reason, you know, I find a second career is the next, you know, hot type of running race director, ah. which we already established is not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, looking, looking forward to it. <laughs> hey, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime down the line. Yeah, absolutely. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Jason for the conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these Off the Couch conversations, we would greatly appreciate it if you would tell your friends about the show and leave us a nice little rating or review in iTunes. Until next time, keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week.